2 Timothy chapter 2. Um, I'm going to get something started here on the potter's wheel. And while I do, I want to ask you a question. Uh, you don't have to answer me out loud. Uh, but every person in here should formulate an answer in their mind. Okay? So think about what I'm asking you. I'm going to ask you three really simple questions. I have a feeling you all know the answers to these three questions. Formulate that answer in your mind. Who do we give credit for authoring the first five books of our King James Bible? Think about that for a minute. Who do we give credit for writing at least uh, 13 epistles in the New Testament and taking three long missionary journeys? Think about who that might be. Think about who is the person that we give credit for doing all kinds of miracles uh, that are recorded in the New Testament. Uh, there was one miracle where he turned water into wine. There was one miracle where he fed uh, 5,000 with a very small amount of sustenance, or amount of available food to this, this person. So I want you to think about those questions, okay? And chances are you formulated the answers, the first five books of the Bible, Moses. That's what most people would say. Uh, if anybody disagrees with that, I'd like to know. Uh, and then the Apostle Paul wrote the 13 epistles, I believe. Uh, I don't know if it's 13 counting Hebrews or 14 with Hebrews, maybe. Or whatever. Uh, and then, of course, Jesus Christ. We give him credit for doing those miracles and so forth. I'll get back to that a little later. But here in 2 Timothy 2, we're going to pray one more time in just a minute. I want to read these verses first. 2 Timothy chapter 2, we'll begin reading in verse 20. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Verse 21, if a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, sure to thank you for the day you've given us. It's been a good day, Lord. I pray that you're pleased with the singing, and the preaching, and the teaching, the giving, decisions that might have been made already today. And Lord, I pray you'd be pleased again with maybe uh, what's about to transpire here in the next hour or so. So Lord, I pray that... Uh, in spite of myself, Lord, that you would use me uh, to speak to the hearts and minds that you brought out here to this, this room. We thank you for this facility, that we can sit in a comfortable, air-conditioned environment with a padded pew and uh, open up the pure word of God and learn more about you and more about what you expect from us. So, Lord, as Paul has written uh, to Timothy here, help us to recognize what our part is in becoming that vessel unto honor, one that's sanctified and meet for the master's use, prepared unto every good work, that we might in fact honor you and glorify you with the days of our salvation. We ask that you'll bless this message and bless the hearers as well. Help us to be not only hearers, but doers of the word. And I ask it all in that precious name, the name above every name, the name of our Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Yeah. So let me remind you also of that template uh, we talked about a little bit this morning. I left it up here. 
talked about Revelation 4.11, that we were created, to paraphrase, to bring God pleasure, and we bring him the pleasure by glorifying him. Then Jesus Christ said in John, we well, said in John 15.5, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same that bringeth forth much fruit. And then he goes on to say, without me, who can do nothing? That's pretty interesting. Do you think you can get up in the morning and tie your shoes? In your own strength? <laughs> well, uh, truth be told, you can't. You know, you can do nothing. But I think the real import of that verse is you can do nothing that really matters, that has any eternal significance, unless you're doing it through his strength and not your own. So in John 15, 8, he said, Here it is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit. And then we mentioned in Titus 3.14 that Paul reminded him that we needed to be careful to maintain good works lest we become unfruitful. And then in Romans 14.10 and in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3 down to verses like you know, it's right around 15 there. And 2 Corinthians 5 kind of verses 10 and 11. Those are the places uh, along with Romans 14.10 we're talking about the judgment seat of Christ and the fact that we're going to be judged uh, for those works one day. So put it all together like we did before. We were created to please God by glorifying him. We glorify him by bearing fruit. We bear fruit by allowing him to do good works through us. And then one day we'll be judged for those works. So keep all that in mind. Now, I've mentioned this before, and maybe it goes without saying, I don't know. Uh, you and I, according to the Bible, were made out of clay. Amen. All right. The Bible says that God's a potter. He made us out of clay, and he uses his very hands to do it. That's Isaiah 64, 8. It says in Genesis 2, 7 that the Lord God uh, formed man of the dust of the ground, talking about the creation of Adam, breathed in his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. The name Adam means red, brown earth. Um, Eliphaz, one of Job's friends, of course, Job said uh, in his, his book, which is written, by the way, it's the oldest book in our Bible. And it says in Job 10, uh, this is Job talking to the Lord, kind of murmuring and complaining a little bit. He says, Thy hands have fashioned me and have made me and fashioned me together round about. Thou hast made me as the clay. Wilt thou bring me to dust again? And then one of Job's friends, uh, Eliphaz, he's visited by this um, angel. He's given this vision. And this angel's trying to communicate something to Eliphaz. And what the thing he's trying to communicate to him is that Compared to God and even the angels, man is considerably less significant. In order to make that point, the angels said the difference between you, Eliphaz, a human being, and the angels and God, which are above you, is that men dwell in houses of clay. So that's just a little background in the power of the clay. Turn to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Now, clay, I showed you a picture of it last time, and I'll bring out some clay tomorrow night that has just been dug out of the ground. And if you may recall from last year, clay just dug out of the ground just looks like a bunch of what you'd expect, just a bunch of dirt. Uh, if it's been dried out, there's contamination in there. There could be grass, there could be paper, leaves, branches, whatever, and some clay, and some of that clay looks like uh, uh, 
It could be dirt or it could be clay. There's a difference between dirt and clay, by the way. Clay molecules are just different. Anyway, that the material that was just dug out of the ground has almost no value. Matter of fact, clay is the single most some, uh, solid, abundant solid material on planet Earth. There's more clay on planet Earth than any other solid material. And there's a whole message right there. God didn't choose to make us out of something special or valuable. He took something that had almost no value and made us out of clay. So if you're in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, hopefully God has dug you out of the ground, a picture of salvation. He brought me up also out of miry pit, out of the uh, out of the clay, and set my feet upon a rack and established my goings. Um, if he's dug you out of the, the miry clay, that's a picture of salvation, but now he wants to process you into a vessel, hopefully, like we read in 2 Timothy, a vessel unto honor. So Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. He says, where we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. What's he talking about? Well, the treasure is mentioned in verse 6. It says, for God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's saying, if you are aware of the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are saved, then you certainly are aware of his glory. And because you are aware of his glory, because you are saved, we put a treasure inside of you. That treasure is the light. If you're in 2 Corinthians 4, I think you can look down in verse 3 or 4 there, it talks about the light of the glorious gospel of Christ. All right? So the treasure is in an earthen vessel. Why did God put it in something as fragile and worthless as an earthen vessel? He says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency and the power may be of God and not of us. Oh. What he's saying, when you combine those verses together, it's like, look at it. God made us out of a, just a valueless material, but then he wants to take possession of that vessel of clay. And he wants, as we mentioned in the worship service, he wants to shape us and mold us and eventually conform us to the likeness of his dear son. But along the way, he's going to make a unique individual out of us to do some unique things that will bring him unique pleasure during the days of our salvation. So that's what it's all about. So it brings me to this point. Uh, what's the purpose of any vessel? I don't care what that vessel's made out of, whether it's clay or glass or wood or metal or cloth, a vessel is basically a container to put something in, okay? And that's what we are. We are a container for the Holy Spirit. Um, now, as a container for the Holy Spirit, think about vessels in general regardless of what they're made out of. Man makes vessels uh, if they're going to have a specific purpose, God or man will make that vessel in a specific shape. So let's say you want to make a container, a vessel of some sort, that you can use to dispense your iced tea or sweet tea or whatever you guys drink around here. Uh, I don't drink tea, so I'm, I'm not familiar with it, but uh, you want a nice picture, right? So you're going to make a shape of a, a vessel, not too big, not too small, to hold the mic right amount of liquid. It's going to have a convenient handle on it, and then it's going to have a spout fashioned in it so you can easily dispense the thing that's contained in it. All right, that's my point I'm trying to make. The vessel is shaped for its purposes. 
Uh, think about um, another type of vessel. I got some in my notes here. How about a salt shaker, okay? You know, you don't make a salt shaker too big. It's a certain size, easy to fit in your hand. It doesn't have to contain a whole lot of salt. It's got to have a certain type of lid on it to easily dispense the salt. Okay, pretty common, pretty obvious. How about a ketchup bottle? Back when I was, uh, back in the 60s, and maybe even before that, maybe the late 50s, uh, it was a special treat for us to go down to the cafe and have a hamburger. And back then, uh, they had the ketchup on the little table in the little cafe we went into. And ketchup back then was always in a glass bottle, okay? And uh, I don't care what brand of ketchup you had, whether it was Heinz or, um, what's the other one? Hunt's. Hunt's. Uh, ketchup was like impossible to get out of that bottle. And there's all these techniques of pounding on the bottom or pounding on the side. And there's all these things that were very frustrating to catch them out of the bottle. Uh, however, man, in his ingenuity, kind of hit a home run by designing a plastic squeeze bottle for ketchup. And that works pretty well. Now, not all of man's improvements are quite so successful as the ketchup bottle. And I'm referring specifically to the mayonnaise squeeze bottle. <laughs> now, I don't know if you guys are Mayo people or Miracle Whip people. I know that's like very divisive. It's almost <laughs> a bigger controversy than the King James Bible. It's like, whoa, I didn't even bring it up. I'm a, I'm a Miracle Whip guy, but don't hold it against me if you're not. Listen, all I know is uh, they've got a Miracle Whip now in a squeeze bottle, and you cannot hardly get it out of there. And when you finally get some out of there, maybe you can get maybe 50% of the Miracle Whip out of that bottle, when all of a sudden you just can't get enough air pressure or whatever to get the rest out of there. And then to top it off, they made the lid so small in the thing you can't like get a spoon in there to get this stuff off. It's really a big failure, okay? So I know I'm, I'm deviating a lot, but I'm trying to kill some time to make this vessel here. <laughs> Listen, you and I are a special vessel. A unique vessel, and God's got a unique purpose for us, for, for us as vessels. Lord willing, uh, we talked this morning about frustrating the grace of God, hindering the grace of God, and you don't want to do that because what He wants to do, He wants to fashion you into that exact unique vessel that He had in mind even before you got saved. God had a plan for your life, which be uh, His plan started to take shape once you got saved. Now he wants to continue with that plan, fashion you into that vessel unto honor, one that's sanctified and meet for the master's use, prepared unto every good work. Think about our vessel this way. In the Old Testament, God had a temple for his people. And in the New Testament, the age of grace, the age that we live in now, the church age, he's got a people for his temple. <laughs> All right? Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. The Bible says in Ephesians 4, verse 30, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed until the day of redemption. Now, I, what do you think that means, to be sealed with the Holy Spirit of God? It could mean a couple different things. To be sealed could mean to um, have God's official stamp of approval, his official uh, authoritative seal on you. 
Okay, that could be one of the things it means. Or, and or, it could be to uh, have that Holy Spirit trapped inside of you until the day of redemption. And I'll tell you in advance, I believe it's both of those things. So turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Pick it up in verse 12. The last word of Ephesians 1.12 is Christ. Verse 13, in whom, in Christ, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Verse 14, what is it? which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. I'm going to read that last verse one more time. Which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Go to your Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 32. I don't know. I, you know I, I try to make it clear. Most people, uh, I know you picked up on it a little bit this morning. Say I'm a professing Christian for 30 years, uh, but never really surrendered to do anything for the Lord until 2003, uh, at which time I was in my mid-50s. So um, that tells you how old I am. Uh, but I come across these things in the Bible from time to time, which are new to me and maybe old to you. You know, but anything that has to do with clay or vessels or anything, um, my antenna is kind of up. So I came across this in verse 32, and like I said, this may be old to you guys, but the context here in Jeremiah 32, we're talking about being sealed with the Holy Spirit of God till the day of redemption. Uh, the context in Jeremiah 32 is a Jeremiah is told by the Lord that his cousin, Hananiel, is going to come to him and offer to sell him a piece of property. And the Lord says, I want you to purchase that property from your cousin. Now keep in mind, back in that time period, uh, the Jews, the Israelites, they were not allowed to sell property unless it was to a blood relative. And that was the case here. So we'll pick it up in verse 8. Jeremiah 32, 8. So Anamiel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of the Lord, and said unto me, Buy my field. Verse 9, and I bought the field of Anamiel. Verse 11, so I took the evidence of the purchase, both that which was sealed, according to the law and custom, and that which was open, and I gave the evidence of the purchase unto Baruch. Skip down to verse 13. And I charged Baruch before them, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Take these evidences, this evidence of the purchase, both which is sealed and this evidence which is open, and put them in what? An earthen vessel that they may continue many days. I mean, there is a picture of New Testament salvation being born again and the Holy Spirit put inside of an earthen vessel. Now, here's what they did. Back in that day, that period of history, they would take their special uh, papers that were important papers and they had a tall, they were usually on a parchment of some kind, a scroll, 
and they would roll them up and they would stick them inside of a tall cylinder like this, a tall earthen cylinder, all right? And then they had a lid that fit over that cylinder that they could close it up with. And just, I'm gonna hope you can kind of get the side view of this thing. It wouldn't probably look like this, but just to make it a little more understandable. So let's say that was the lid. And this part of the lid would probably be the main design. So these, that little area right there fit inside the cylinder. And this little area right here of the lid rested on top of the cylinder, if that makes sense to you. So what did they do? They rolled up those papers. They already, it says they paid the evidence, the evidence of the purchase, which was sealed. That's the authoritative mark was put on it. But not only was it sealed that way, it was put in this earthen vessel, and that vessel was sealed as well. What they did is they would take hot wax and drip that around this edge of that cylinder. And that hot wax would uh, just be built up on there. Of course, as soon as it hits that, it pretty much dries out. They might even put some hot wax under this lid. They turn that lid upside down, drip some hot wax on that. Then they heat up either the cylinder or more likely the lid, get it nice and warm. And then they put that on top of that earthen cylinder. What would happen? A seal would happen, a watertight seal. So between the clay cylinder and the watertight lid, because of the wax, that was sealed, those important papers, and protect them. It's the same thing with us. We have a treasure in an earthen vessel that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. So that's the whole thing about the Holy Spirit. Now, Go to 1 Corinthians, oh, okay, oh, you don't have to go there. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, I think it says, Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God, something like that. So I want to give you three very simple, very practicable things that you and I need to do if we're going to be a vessel unto honor. And actually, it's, it's really one thing that is in three parts. So what's the one thing? we need to do if we're going to be a vessel unto honor. We need to make ourselves available to the power of the Holy Spirit that's inside of us. As a matter of fact, turn to, I think it's, go to 1 Corinthians 12. Let's see if I got the right verse here. This is kind of a new verse for me. Again, like I said, I'm not as... Um, a pastor keeps complimenting me on my Bible knowledge, but you can tell it's not all you've cracked up to be, not according to what he thinks it is. But this verse is kind of new to me. It's real special. And I think of it's 1 Corinthians 12, 7. It says, but the manifestation of the Spirit, is that the way it starts? Amen. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. Now that capital S Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit. You know why God put the Holy Spirit inside of you and me when we got born again? So that we could profit from it. <laughs> Not only do we profit from it, but when we allow the Holy Spirit to manifest itself through us, probably that person we are engaging with that is experiencing the manifestation of the Spirit in us, that person is probably profiting as well you know who else is profiting? The Lord Jesus Christ. And that profit, that word gain, that's all about us getting part of our earned inheritance. 
As a matter of fact, if you go to that parable of the uh, uh, the parable of the pounds, you don't have to go there. It's in Luke 19. That's where that certain noble man gives each of his servants a single pound, tells them to occupy. He wants them to make a gain. He wants them to make a profit with that one pound they've get, been given. That's a picture of the spiritual gift that you and I have been given, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what do we need to do to take advantage of that Holy Spirit, to have that Holy Spirit manifest itself through us? We need to make ourselves available to that manifestation of the capital F Spirit, the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to mention this guy a few times throughout the week, Major Ian Thomas. I mentioned him in Sunday school. He said this. He said, all of the inexhaustible supplies of God are available to the man who makes himself available to all the inexhaustible supplies of God. What's he talking about? He's talking about inexhaustible supply of strength, inexhaustible supply of wisdom or knowledge and or understanding, inexhaustible supply of grace and mercy and truth and comfort and peace and joy and satisfaction and fulfillment and contentment and go on and on. Think about the nine fruit of the Spirit. He's got an inexhaustible supply of those if you'll make yourself available to that inexhaustible supply that he has. It's inexhaustible. The list itself is inexhaustible. Okay? That's how special it is. Now we've got a, a tremendous example that I don't think we recognize sometimes what a tremendous example this person is. And this person I'm speaking about is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he spent his uh, 33 and a half years in the body of a human being on planet Earth, when he manifested himself in that, in that form. So I want to look at a tremendous example of someone that made themselves available to God's purposes and God's pleasure. And keep in mind the whole time we're, we're looking at these verses is that same power is available to us because the Holy Spirit, God, is residing in every single born-again believer. And what can God do through us? Anything he wants to. I'm not advocating that God is going to use us during this church age to raise the dead or heal people. I, I'm not advocating that God is going to use us to start speaking in some unknown language, okay? But I am telling you this, you and I have no excuses when the Lord leads us to do something and we say, oh, I can't do that. Oh, yeah, you can. And God, you know, truth of the matter is God doesn't want you to do it. He wants to do it himself through you. But if God is leading you to step out in faith and allow him to do something through you, then you have to trust him that he will, in fact, do that. So open your Bibles again. Here we go to the Gospel of John. We're going to probably look at six or eight, maybe ten verses in the Gospel of John on how what a great example to us the Lord Jesus Christ is. You say, well, that's not fair. He's God. Yeah, he is. But when he was on planet Earth, he must have got a purpose ahead of time. He wasn't going to use his, I don't know how to say this because it's kind of hard to express. He wasn't going to use his godly powers to do the things he wanted to do. He's going to trust in the power of God the Father, just like he wants us to trust in the power of God the Father, or God the Son, or the God the Holy Spirit. He wants us to trust in God the same way he trusted in God, if that's clear. Let's look at what Jesus Christ himself said 
in the Gospel of John. We'll start in John 6. John 6, verse 38. The Gospel of John. I think every verse we're going to look at pretty much is going to be in the Gospel of John. And I think almost every one of them is Jesus Christ himself speaking. So this is what Jesus Christ said, recorded by John, in John 6, 38. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. So right there, just that one verse is telling me that Jesus Christ surrendered his will to the will of God the Father. Look at chapter 8, verse 29. John 8, verse 29. And we'll look at the second half of verse 29 where it says, For I do always those things that please him. Always? Yeah. He always did those things that please God the Father. Look at John 12:49. John 12, verse 49, the Bible says, this is Christ speaking, for I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me, he gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. Right there, Christ is telling us, hey, you know these words that you hear me saying? These aren't kind of my own words. These are the words that God the Father told me to say, according to him himself. Look at John chapter 17. Christ surrendered his speech. John 17, verse 8. We'll look at the same thing again here. John 17, 8. Christ said, For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me. Go back to John 14. John 14, 24. Christ speaking, He that loveth me not, keepeth not my sayings. And the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father which sent me. So, so far we've seen that Jesus Christ surrendered his will. He also surrendered his speech or his words. And he also suspended, uh, surrendered his works. Look at John 14, 10. Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me. He doeth the works. So Christ is saying, hey, I thought even me doing these works. It's the power of God the Father doing them through me. Because guess what? I'm in the body of a man. Now you're familiar with some of these verses. It says in Hebrews that, Christ was tempted in all points like we are yet without sin. Christ wasn't resisting that sin and the strength of God, which he could have, but then he wasn't tempted in all points like we are. Then he was tempted in all points like we are yet without sin. So he was resisting the, that temptation, that desire to sin, however you want to say it, in because he had availed himself of the strength of God the Father. Just like we can avail ourselves the strength of God, the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus Christ, however you want to say it. God, okay? Sometimes we talk about God within us, or Jesus within us, or the Holy Spirit within us, and I don't think it's incorrect to say any of those things, because they are one and the same, as a rule. Okay? So, um, by the way, 
Uh, look in John 14 10. We just read that. Go into John chapter 5. You know, when I mentioned earlier who wrote the first five books of the Bible, if you said Moses, and I was to say, no, Moses actually didn't write those first five books of the Bible, the Holy Spirit, God, wrote those books through Moses. You'd say, well, that's true also. Amen. See, it's a perspective. That's all it is. It's the way you choose to look at something. Moses is, is the right answer. He was the human author. But who literally did the writing? It was the Holy Spirit doing it through Moses. Amen. Who, who did those, uh, those missionary journeys? Who wrote those 13 epistles? That was the Holy Spirit or God, however you want to say it, writing those things through the Apostle Paul. Amen. That wasn't Apostle Paul doing those missionary journeys. He just yielded himself to the power of God and just took that step of faith. And one by one, step after step, day after day, he allowed God to do those things through him. By and large, almost without exception. Now, there were times when he deviated from that availability. And I dare say, as human beings, it's, it's pretty much impossible not to deviate from that. Jesus Christ is the only example of someone who never deviated. He was 100% available 100% of the time. And that's impossible for us human beings that have an old man inside of us, unfortunately. Look in John uh, 8, 28. Christ says it again, slightly different. John 8, 28. Christ speaking. Then said Jesus unto them, when, uh, when ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself. But as the Father hath taught me, I speak these things. So he's saying, I do nothing of myself, referring to works. And then he goes back to his speech again as well. Even the things I speak, they're from God the Father. So, John 14, 12. You know, you know the disciples? Jesus Christ said, uh, well, he might even say it in this verse. Look in John 14, 12. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, speaking to the disciples, he that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Now, I don't, I haven't quite figured that one out yet, but he, Jesus Christ, according to the Bible, just telling the disciples, the works that you see me do, you guys are going to do even greater works than those. And we know we have examples of some of the apostles raising the dead, healing the sick, and doing different things like that. Was it them doing it? We don't think they were doing it in their own strength. We know that was God doing it through them. And my whole point of this being available is let's take a lesson from Jesus Christ and all these other people as well that allowed the Spirit of God, the power of God, working through them to accomplish the purposes and pleasures that God created them to bring him. Go to Acts. Chapter 2. What about the miracles that Jesus Christ did when he's on planet Earth? I mean, we just take it for granted that he did those miracles because he was God. But I think we should change our perspective and think about it. He did those miracles relying on the power of God to do them it says here in Acts 2.22, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which 
God did by him. God did those miracles by Jesus Christ. It says it right there in Amen. black and white. Okay, That's Peter preaching uh, his message in Acts chapter 2. Listen, go to Mark. We know that Jesus Christ was, has always been God and will always be God. All right? Always was, always will be, and always has been. And he's always been God. But I think for a period of three, 33 and a half years, he purposed ahead of time, and I guess I just don't know how to say it any other way, but he purposed ahead of time he would not use his own God powers, but he would rely on the God powers of God the Father. We know that God is omniscient, he's omnipresent, and he's omnipotent. He's all-knowing, all-powerful, and he's everywhere, right? How is it in Mark chapter 13? Look down in verse 32. But the, of that day, he's talking about, well, let's back it up to verse 30. Verily I say unto you that this generation shall not pass till all these things be done. Verse 31, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Verse 32, but of that day and that hour knoweth no man. He's talking about the second advent here. Of that day and that hour knoweth no man. Know not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. He's saying, because he's saying this, that's Jesus Christ speaking, recorded by Mark, right? But Jesus Christ is speaking as he's in his earthly ministry. And while he was in that earthly ministry, he, according to this verse, did not know the day or the hour when that thing happened. But God the Father did. Amen. Now Jesus knows now because he's not in that earthly body anymore. And he probably knew before he got in the earthly body. Right? It's hard for us to comprehend. But there's some, you know, he's God. He can do anything however he wants. And again, I point this up. I am, I hope you understand. I am not diminishing the importance of Jesus Christ in any way. Just the opposite. I want you to realize the power that's in each and every one of us to do the things that he wants done. And like I say, I'm not talking about these overt, over-the-top, crazy, flashy things. Just the power to invite some guy to church and, you know, not be upset or offended when he doesn't show up. Or to hand someone a gospel track and not be offended or upset when he doesn't take it are on and on. There are so many opportunities to be discouraged in ministry, but if you're doing it with the right perspective, the perspective that, Lord, if this person doesn't take my this gospel track, I'm not in control of that, but I am in control of actually handing it to them. So if you do that, you do it with charity, guess what? That survives the fiery trial of the Joseph City of Christ because the Bible says charity never fails. So I can't overestimate the idea that the power that's available to us because we have God living inside of us. So I told you being available has actually three parts. And in order for me to sear this into your, your brain so that you won't forget it, I, I brought this uh, little superhero friend of mine. His name is Ace. And he's kind of like a, he's supposed to be a Christian superhero. He's kind of like, <laughs> Spooky looking guy, if you ask me, but, uh, and he's kind of funny. He's got his cape on. He's got the big letter A on him, because, on his sweater, because his name is Ace. And the reason his name is Ace is because he stands for someone that's available 
clean and empty, A-C-E. This is my attempt to help you remember this. <laughs> you see, it's not just enough to be available. Let me give you the example. Saturday uh, at 10 a.m., a small group, uh, actually a pretty good-sized group of people met in the church here, prayed for a few minutes, and then we went out on the street for a half hour or 45 minutes, held up some signs, and some of the guys did preaching out there, right? We made ourselves, those that showed up, made ourselves available to do that. Now, if God's going to use that vessel for his glory and honor, those vessels that showed up here, that a vessel is not just enough to be, make yourself available, but when you are available, when you are present, you need to be clean and you need to be empty because God doesn't use dirty things. All right? So let me give you a bunch of, of verses. I already told you about availability and what a great example Jesus Christ had. So to be available, number one, under a subcategory of available, we need to be clean. If we're not clean, we're not available. And only God can clean an earthen vessel, and God cleans earthen vessels through the words of God. These are verses I've mentioned over and over again in most of my messages. Jesus Christ uh, said that he loved the church, according to the Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus. Loved the church, gave his life for it, uh, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word, the word of God. God's words supernaturally clean an earthen vessel. All right? Jesus Christ says in 1 John 1, 9, uh, if we confess our sins, this isn't Jesus Christ speaking, this is the Apostle John. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's why we have to spend time in God's words. The Bible says that these words are to serve the thoughts and intents of our heart. When we spend time in these supernatural words, they will bring to our conscious mind things we need to forsake and repent and get right with. So we keep those channels of fellowship open between us and our Savior. And that's how that keeps us clean. Because only God can clean an earthen vessel. King David knew that. He knew that, that according to the book of Leviticus, talking about that, when I said when a dead thing touches an earthen vessel, you're supposed to break it. If you sought in a sin offering in an earthen vessel, you're supposed to break it. Whereas if that dead thing touches a brass vessel or something like that, if you sought in a sin offering in a brass vessel, you can just wash it under running water. But only God can clean an earthen vessel. And he supernaturally does it when that earthen vessel, you and I, spend time in these words. It says in Psalm 119, verse 9, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto, according to these words. If we spend time in the Word of God, which is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, it brings those conscious things to our conscious mind, things we do need to forsake and repent of. It's all about spending time in God's words, not just the reading, but the memorizing and the studying and the meditating. Jesus Christ said, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. He said in John 15, 3, Now are ye clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. So if you show up to do ministry and you want it to survive the fiery trial of the judgment seat of Christ, you have to be a clean vessel. Otherwise, you're not really available for his purposes and pleasure. Not fully available. Now, it's not enough, it's enough to be available and clean. You also have to be empty. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3. 
I'm talking about empty. I'm talking about empty of self. And I've mentioned it already. That's the problem in our culture right now. It's not just the United States. It's the world, worldwide thing, especially people that are affluent. They are just self-absorbed, and they're self-absorbed with self-gratification, self-pleasure. That's self, self, self. That's all that is. What do you think the word selfie came from? Oh, me. Self. <coughs> a selfie is nothing more than you are filled with yourself. I was telling pastor, uh, young pastor, school filled, how uh, I read this book on uh, our focus, how we don't have the focus we used to have. You can tell, by the way, I have standing there. I don't have the focus we used to have. Uh, it's by design. It's the God of this world messing with us through primarily the social media stuff. He's talking about how if he, he said he observed, uh, 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 he was over in Europe and he was looking at the, the Louvre or wherever they had the Mona Lisa hanging. And he said there's just a big pile of people crowded around that, the Mona Lisa. He said almost none of them are looking at the painting. All they're doing is jockeying for position with that painting behind them with a selfie. <laughs> and that's the whole, he said they're fighting to get close enough where they can do that. And then they turn around and then they walk away. He said they're not even looking at the painting. They're just trying to let people know that's where they are. I mean, it's we're obsessed with this stuff. And it's that's not us, you know. Anyway, I hope you don't own a whole lot of selfie sticks or <laughs> stuff they have. I, I know there's hey, there, there's there's times for that stuff. I'm not saying there is a, there's nothing wrong with taking pictures here and there and stuff, but boy, we have taken it over the top. Ephesians chapter Amen. three, great prayer here. Beginning of verse 14, the Apostle Paul writes, Ephesians 3, 14, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height. And to know the love of God, uh, the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. You know what's going to keep you from being filled with all the fullness of God? Be filled with self. Yeah. You know, Man. you saw me make this vessel up here. It's quite a bit different than this one. Uh, they're both uh, halfway decent looking vessels. Keep in mind when potters make big vessels like this, there's usually a lot of trimming that can be done to refine the shape, especially the lower part of the vessel, as those things begin to harden up. But you know what? Man looketh on the outward appearance, and the Lord looketh on the heart. So while this vessel maybe look real good to you on the outward appearance, what does it look like to the Lord when he looks inside? This is a picture of a vessel filled from top to bottom with nothing but filthy rags that's what the Bible says about us. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Amen. How can God fill himself, fill you with himself, if you're already filled with your own self? And the answer is you can't. Uh, just for the sake of time, I'm not going to take you to John chapter 12. That talks about, you know, accept a corn of wheat fall on the ground and die. It abideth alone. But if it go into the ground and die, bring it forth much fruit, something like that. Listen, we need to die to self, and that's what uh, us being empty of self is all about. God wants to live us, uh, us to live an abundant life. That's all through the scriptures. Jesus Christ said, I am come that they might have life 
and that they might have it more abundantly. It says in Ephesians 3, verse 20, God is able to bless us exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. And that's what he wants to do if we'll make ourselves available to him. It's about getting our eyes off of ourselves and getting them on Christ. Get rid of that self-love, that self-esteem, that self-reliance, and recognize without Christ, we can do nothing. You know, in his book, The Mystery of Godliness and the Saving Life of Christ, Major Ian Thomas has a, a chapter there talking about the worth of a man. And I, I've written some of the points of that down in my notes here. Because he's talking about the Apostle Paul, and we got saved on that road to Damascus. He said he started to realize exactly what his worth was. And it goes like this. This is the excerpt from his book. Keep in mind, your worth to God has got nothing to do uh, with your education or your athletic ability or your physical strength or how much money you have in the bank. He could care less about all of that stuff. Your worth is just like the Apostle Paul came to realize. Your worth is uh, valued by how much of Christ or how much of God other people can see in you. Amen. All right? So the Apostle Paul, uh, talking about his salvation experience, Major Ian Thomas wrote, Saul of Tarsus suddenly discovered that a man is worth only as much as can be seen of God in him. From that moment on, nothing else mattered. Saul of Tarsus stopped being Saul of Tarsus and became Paul the Apostle. Uh, let's see. Losing his life, he found it. Dying to self and buried with Christ, he found himself alive again in God. For in that blinding flash of glory on the Damascus Road, the whole mystery of godliness had become an open secret in the face of Jesus Christ. And here's the key. Paul had discovered how much he was worth. Nothing. To discover that is to discover how much Christ is worth. Everything. And when you are willing to obey what you have discovered and let the truth behave in you, the capital T referring to God, let the truth behave, then the Lord Jesus Christ will fill what you are, nothing, with what he is, everything, and that indeed will be something. Now, I like Ace because Ace is a vessel. He's a clean vessel, and he's an empty vessel. All right? And he's available. And God will use him, just like God will use any of us if we'll make ourselves available by being clean and empty. You have to be all three things. You have to be these two things to be this for God's purposes. You have to be clean. If you can only get clean through the Word of God and you're not in the Word of God, then you're not really available. You can only get clean through the Word of God, and so that's why you need to be in it, to be a clean vessel, to be an empty vessel, to be an available vessel. Turn to Proverbs chapter 25. Simple verse, and if you read your Proverbs every month and you've read this many times, I hope you'll look at it with new eyes, maybe after we cover a little bit. Proverbs 25, verse 4. The Bible says, Take away the dross from the silver 
and there shall, there shall come forth a vessel for the fire. So we're talking about vessels. We're talking about being a vessel unto honor, one that's sanctified and meek for the master's use, prepared in every good work. That's part of the description of a vessel unto honor. It says, take away the dross from the silver, there shall come forth a vessel for the fire. So what is the dross? The dross is basically everything that's not really silver. When you do silver out of the ground, it has an ore, there's all kinds of stuff that aren't actually silver, and that, that whole chunk of whatever it is with the silver is heated up, and everything that's not silver is dross and that's taken away. And the Bible has a lot to say about dross and shards and things like that. Take away the dross from the silver, there shall come forth a vessel into the fire. That reminds me of a, a famous sculptor named Michelangelo Buonarotti, really just known as Michelangelo. He was the famous painter that painted the ceilings in the Sistine Chapel. As quality of a uh, painter, he was even more superior qualified to do sculpture. And he has some of these amazingly larger-than-life sculptures. Most of them are in Rome or in the Vatican because the Pope at the time, and this was back in the... Uh, I don't know if I got my notes here. It's back in, I think, in the 1400s, 1500s, 1600s. I'm not sure exactly the date. Long time ago. Anyway, I remember one of the few books I ever read in high school. It was called The Agony and the Ecstasy. And it was the life story of Michelangelo. And I had to go online to re retrieve the exact quote. But I remember him saying this because people were amazed at the sculpture that Michelangelo did. He's got a sculpture of King David. All right, and he's just a, like a young lad. He's saying there not a whole lot of clothing on, but if you looked at his his wrists, for example, in this marble sculpture, you could see the veins in his wrist. That's the detail he had in that sculpture. And I'm thinking to myself, how did he do that? You know, when I made Ace here, I made a couple vessels. Let's say when I was making his face, and I stuck a little clay on here for his nose, and I thought, ah, it's too big. Well, I'll take a little off. Uh, if I was too small, I would just add a little. So clay is very forgiving. You can add and subtract, you know, until it gets really hard. But with marble, alabaster, carving that, no, no mistakes. So I, I retrieved it online to get the, the quote I was looking for, because people would ask Michelangelo this all the time. And by the way, I discovered a couple other quotes in there. He said this, I work out of love for God and put all my hope in him. Michelangelo said that. Now, I was very surprised to read that he said that. Because I know from having read that biography about him that he led a very pagan, heathen, wicked lifestyle. But I know some believers that have backslid and they're leading just as vile a life as he did, maybe. Anyway, I'll take that at face value. He might have been saved with that quote. He said this, the quote I was looking for, because people say, how do you do what do you do? He said this, in every block of marble, I see a statue as plain as though it stood before me, already shaped and in perfect attitude and action. All I have to do is hew away the rough walls that imprison the lovely apparition to reveal it to the eyes of others as my eyes already see it. You know who said something similar? Dr. Ruckman. You know, now, Dr. Ruckman, if you're familiar with some of his chalk drawings, he called those cartoons. But even that, for him to be up there and, and do something, he was a real artist, by the way, if you didn't know that. He could do things that just almost look like a photograph. He was talented. 
But when he was preaching and doing these chalk drawings, people would ask him, how do you do that? He said, I already see the whole thing up there. I'm just drawing it in. It's almost like he was copying over something that was traced, only it wasn't traced. It's the same thing that Michelangelo said. I already see it. He says, I just removed the parts that don't belong there. He also said this, the marble not yet carved can hold the form of every thought the greatest artist has. Well, you and I know who the greatest artist is. That's Jesus Christ. He is by far the greatest artist ever. And my whole point to bring this full circle is this. Even before we were conceived in our mother's wombs, Jesus Christ already knew the individual vessels under honor. He wanted each of us to become one day. And who knows, when we get to the judgment seat of Christ, if we're going to see if, if and or how much progress we might have made by allowing him to shape us and mold us into that vessel unto honor. It's a sobering thought. Amen. It's sobering for me. We need to get rid of the dross, the residue in our lives, the self things as well as envy and bitterness and pride and rebellion and unforgiveness, laziness, covetousness, gossip, insecurity, indifference to lost souls, fear of man, on and on and on and on. It could be anything. It could be something small, something big. I want to encourage you, allow God to shape you and mold you into a vessel of honor. Just remember Ace. Make yourself available by being clean and empty. And then look for purposes to please God by making yourself available. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for showing us these principles from your scripture.